Welcome to this podcast with me, Ross Manson, interviewing Grant Downey. Over the next three episodes, we talk about everything that he's done in the game. All the highs, all the lows, from relegation to promotion to trebles to cup wins to UEFA Cup finals, everything that you can think of. We talk about personalities, people he's worked with, people he's met, and where he wants to go in the future. So, sit back, relax, and I hope you enjoy it. Thought we'd start with your school career. Mm-hmm. Um, so, do you want to tell me about school? Yes, yeah, school. School was, you know, often people say to you, your school are your happiest days of your life. They certainly weren't for me because I found school difficult. Uh, I think primary school was relatively straightforward. Probably my mum realised I wasn't very good at reading and writing and tried to help me, but really there was probably a reason later on we realised she couldn't help me because I was sort of diagnosed in those days. It wasn't dyslexia, it was just with learning difficulty. And I can always remember one of my first year or first times at secondary school being asked to stand up in an English class and read out loud. And, you know, the, if he even asked me to do that now, I couldn't do it. And, you know, that's 45 years later, but I couldn't do it then and was told to sit down and you would be hopeless and you'd not have a career doing anything. And I think, you know, that day, that night, I never slept. I can always remember worrying about it and self-esteem being very low. But very fortunately, the next day, Another teacher had obviously heard about this and then just said to me, you know, you know, what was the problem? And I, I found I could talk to this teacher and cut a long story short. He then recommended through my mum that I go to what was then known as a remedial school for thick people. That's what they were. You know, those are the days where it was classed as that. Uh, but I would have to go there for a year, at least a year. And I would miss all my sport, which I was pretty good at. Uh, so I didn't want to go. But my mum rightfully persuaded me it was the best thing and she bribed me by guaranteeing me every day she took me she'd make me egg sandwiches and tomato soup. <laughs> and she did. Uh, she's the only reason I went. Uh, but I went from a 12-year-old of a reading age of 7 to 13, being 13.2. Uh, and I met an outstanding teacher there and other pupils who had difficulties but found a way of of not overcoming it, because you never overcome being dyslexic, you know, but it actually gave me enough confidence to realise that if I worked hard and got some fortunate breaks, which I did, maybe I could do something. But I was always good at sport, which helped. Uh, But I found school difficult. I didn't find it easy. And how aware were you of your dyslexia? Did you think there was a problem or did you just think, from maybe not the brightest? I, I, I knew I was bright at certain things and I knew... But I knew, for example, if a teacher was dictating and I had to write it down, when I read it back to me, it didn't make any sense. Yeah. Uh, I also knew that when I when I would do writing or written work, sorry, uh, I'd often join words together. Still do, you know. I mean, you know, thank goodness for the fact that when you write on a computer these days, it does spell check because my spelling's hopeless still. Yeah. But but what I what I now realise is there was probably not a lot that would have improved it. But I tried, and my mum tried. She was, you know, a, a tremendous help to me. I'll never forget what she did and, and, and you know, I also remember as a young boy having a, a ladybird book on Robert the Bruce about a cave and a spider and I still actually, it's quite funny, I'm 56 next ne- next week and I've, I've asked my stepson to buy me it because I want to read it again because actually it's a book that inspired me at the time uh, and it was all about effort and trying and if you don't succeed try, try again and it doesn't mean you'll be successful at everything, no one is. But what it what I was as a child was determined to to try and do something in my life that would make me happy. Yeah. And when you went into secondary school, you obviously sat exams. Did you do well in the exams? Uh, not at first, no. I mean, in the very first year, I can remember, you know, they, we were placed, I think there was 250 boys in the year. And that was at the age of 11. And to get to a sort of what was then a selective grammar school after two years where you would get a, a more chance to do academic subjects, you really had to be in the top. I think 100 and I was probably about I think about 210 after the first year but after then going to remedial school at the end of the second year I was 42nd. Right okay so it made a huge difference. Made a huge difference. What was the what what did they do in the remedial school? Do you know it's difficult to remember it totally but I think first of all you got attention and empathy you know you were surrounded by someone who could actually understand why you didn't understand and they just mean made simple things and also what they did and I've done this with some children before this they actually 
got you to read what you're interested in. So for example, I love football and I, I was one of those children who could look at a league table and I could remember where people were, how many points they had, how many, didn't that? So, so suddenly they made context. So reading wasn't about, you know, Jonathan falling off a wall and hurting his wrist and going to hospital. It was about a, a young football team going on a tour and they had 10 players and they needed to get so many points. It became interesting. Yeah. And I think from there, it, 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 it almost it was a light bulb. And that light bulb, you know, then meant that I would read things that interested me, not just for the sake of reading. Yeah. And do you think you said there about the empathy? You Obviously, in your future life, mm. deal with people that are upset, angry, mm. disappointed. Do you think that the empathy that you learned at the school has helped you when you're when you're dealing with patients now or do you think it's it's the whole journey that's I think it's a bit of both, but there is no doubt. I think the empathy goes back a stage further. I was telling someone recently, I think I'm an empathetic person because I like to see people well the school definitely helped me, but I also remember an incident at primary school I spoke to someone about recently, whereby when there was a young boy who I can remember his mother died, I think, when we were in the first or second year. And I can remember he was eventually taken to the social care because his father struggled to look after him. And I can also remember, even as a seven-year-old, we used to get changed in those days to go and do PE, boys and girls in the same room. And boys would take their trousers off, put shorts on and a stop, and the girls would do the same. But this young boy had no pants. And I can also remember the girls laughing at his private parts. And I used to also intentionally get dressed in front of him so they couldn't see. Yeah. So it doesn't go, and I think it was almost the one thing I've always believed in life is fairness. I don't, and, and listen, life isn't always fair, mm. but I think everyone deserves a fair chance of it. And so I think definitely the school helped me. I think my parents were empathetic people too. And so I think there's two things. It, it's got to be inherently slightly in you, but your environment's vital too. Mm. So when you left high school, what sort of qualifications did you have? I'd got, in those days, I don't think they have them anymore. They were called O-levels and then A-levels. A-levels in England are sort of like a second year higher in Scotland. Yeah. Uh, and I needed those to then train to be as a physiotherapist. And again, I had to work my socks off. And I soon realised as a young person that most of my friends could read something once and they would remember it and they would be able to recite it. I had to read it five times and probably still do. But if that's what it took, I did it. And at what stage did you decide physiotherapy is where I want to go? Probably when I was about 15, because I was a pretty good sportsman, never going to be a professional sportsman at anything, but not far, probably just the low below that level. I could probably play most sports pretty well, but I wasn't outstanding at any. And I think I was a throwaway comment from my dad at the time. Well, you should maybe consider, you know, going into the physiotherapy side. And I remember at the time, one of my teammates of my under 15 team hurt his knee. And then he needed surgery. And I remember once going to the hospital, seeing what the physio did. And it just sort of seemed to be, you know, right, I want to be a football physio. Little bit did I know that my career wouldn't go down that route at first. But it was a sort of a moment that I suddenly thought, yeah, well, let, let's try and be a physio. It gave you something to aim at. Something to, and I think it's important to have, A, something to aim at, but B, something that's far enough away that it's not easily achievable, but also is achievable. So it, you, yeah. you know, you've got to be realistic with your aims, but you've got to shoot for the stars, because yeah. if you fail, you hit the highest mountain. Yeah, absolutely. So moving on to university, you stayed with my mum and dad? Uh, I did, <laughs> I did, yes. Listen, I studied at university, I, I at times with your mum and dad, and I think it was, you know, university again was hard for me, because, you know, studying isn't something that I find easy. But I did it and then, you know, I came up to Glasgow and my first ever job was in the Glasgow Royal Infirmary. I started there in 1984 uh, as a junior grade physiotherapist, which meant you spent three months or four months in each ward rotating around. Brilliant time. Loved, loved the job, partly because you you were working in a big institution and, and, and there was lots of young nurses. No, that wasn't the real reason. <laughs> the real reason was you saw proper multidisciplinary teams looking after ill people and how... How good they were and you know you, you you saw some horrific things you know sadly you know again some of the memories i have are tainted by you know seeing young people dying and it's not pleasant and it but it actually puts life into perspective and you know i i, I thoroughly enjoyed my time there and you know i i think the nhs is a wonderful organization and i think you know it's a victim of its own success and yeah. i know it has to remodel and i totally understand it but long may it last so from 
the NHS, you mm. moved on to, is it Lily? Lily Shaw. Lily Shaw. Okay. Well, I was, again, what I did there was I followed, I, I, when I was, I went on a course to Lily Shaw when I was working at the Glasgow Royal Infirmary. And uh, when I was down there, I just thought this looks a tremendous centre. So I said to the person in charge, listen, is there any chance I could come and just do some observation placements? And he said, well, actually, we're looking for volunteers to come and work during the summer. So I didn't go on holiday that summer. I worked there for two weeks for nothing. Uh, and at the end of it, I didn't realise they were actually looking for another physio. And he turned around to me and said, listen, we've really enjoyed you being here. Would you ever fancy coming to work here now? To be honest, I was A, overawed, B, thought, I'm not ready for this. Because I'd gone from, if you think about it, working in the Glasgow Royal Infirmary, working with rugby players who were all part-time. And we had one or two internationals, people like Johnny Beatty were you know, playing for the team at that time. Uh, but actually, in that first week at Lillishaw, I saw people like Mark Lawrenson, who now you know speaks uh, you know, on television, Jan Baldy from Liverpool. They were players from Arsenal, people who were like, some of my heroes as as a, as a child so how could I suddenly be working in such an environment so I thought again you've got to sometimes you've got to stretch yourself and I'm a great believer in as long as people are supported you should stretch them and I took the job basically didn't think I could do the job but I did the job and again it was a massive learning curve for two or three years I went home every night and was got my books out for specialists you know and again it, and what it taught me and it's something that you know I carry to this day you know, what's the different de definition, sorry, of an expert? And an expert is knows what he knows, but he also is very, I'm very comfortable what I don't know. Right. And Lillishaw taught me that, that actually in the field of sports medicine, you can be a, a general specialist or a specialist maybe in one type of injury. My job was to be pretty good at them all, but I couldn't be an expert. Mm -hmm. But there are experts out there. So when you don't know, don't bullshit, go and find someone and they'll help you. Yeah. You know. Uh, how, it, it fascinates me, how did you go from... Like just being like, how did how did you first interact with your with your heroes? I think again, what I, I was pro probably quite good at doing was just listening right. and, and and reacting to different situations. And I think you, you know you I, I learned that you had to get their respect, and I think respect comes from your actions. And I can also remember the very first or second week of that Lilla show. I had some. I remember I had I think there was Mark Lawrence in the group. There was a guy called Vinnie Jones who people will remember. Yeah. Uh, people of that sort of ilk who were strong characters, Jan Malbin. I remember taking to the local swimming pool, which is about four miles away from Lillishaw. And at the end of the session, they threw me in the pool with all my clothes on. <laughs> and I thought, you know, they've done something to me. I've got to show my mark back. Mm -hmm. So I was fine. I got out the pool, never said a thing. They're all, and as they got changed, I just drove off and left them so they had to walk back. <laughs> and it was a bit of a sort of gamble on my part. But it worked. <laughs> yeah. Because they realise that's fine. You can mess about with me, uh, but you'll get it back. But you'll get it back. It 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 wasn't necessarily easy at first because I was younger than a lot of them, and I think what you have to do, and I, I've always said it with footballers or sports people, when you're working with them, they're still patients, and because you're spending a lot more time with maybe say them than in NHS, you can become friendly but never friends mm -hmm. because you're going to make some decisions that might affect their career, yeah. and so you've got to learn that line of friendship but it's not they're not friends yeah and I, I know i've worked with a lot of players now and now they're ex-players and they don't care they can become friends mm -hmm. you know in the summer i have i have befriended mm -hmm. but not when you're working with them because yeah. there's a dangerous line yeah and how did you how did you deal with all the different sports did you quite enjoy yeah, that Yeah, i loved it I, I think it's because you learn so much i think you know the physical demands can be very different the mental commands can be different but ultimately they're people you know, and all people start off with, you know, they're, they're born into the world and they have views. And, you know, I think the nice thing was you saw sports of different. I loved working with the gymnasts because I like I like gymnastics. I like ballet. I love the, the athleticism of the movement. Uh, it was different to football. I love rugby and I work with rugby union players, rugby league players, golfers. And, you know, and at one stage at Lillishaw, someone I was talking to someone the other day, I was going through some of my old memorabilia to sort it out. And I realised I was treating someone like Jonathan Davies, who was at the time one of the best rugby union league players there was. I was looking after uh, a jockey who was actually the Grand National Champion. I looked after Ian Woosnam, who was the world number one golfer. And it was, but they were just people. And I don't mean this to sound arrogant with them, but the, you know, they were all, they all mixed together. Mm -hmm. and, and I think what people forget is the sports people of this sort of ilk are just people. 
and underneath this facade of being a, a top-class sportsman they have the same vulnerabilities and worries as you and I do and actually I was able to probably treat them just as normal and, yeah. and, and I think they appreciated that because I didn't take any bullshit yeah. you know I enjoyed a laugh with them I, 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 I treated them uniquely differently but at the same time I never blew smoke up their backside because they had enough other people doing that they actually needed to turn to probably someone a bit normal who could talk normal and especially if it's working with injuries surely they, they don't want you to say well you know this will be fine and then it's not exactly and I think one thing that gives any athlete or even person in life vulnerability is their health you know and I've often got a phrase you know your real wealth in life is your health irrespective of what you do uh, and as a sportsman it, you know without it you're not going to pay the mortgage Aye. you know so having trust in a medical opinion, which was why I became very happy to say to the sports people, I don't know how long you're going to be out for, but I'll find someone who will. Right. So I was very happy to realise, so for example, like now, if you've got a significant knee injury or ankle, I've probably got a good idea what's wrong with you. If you've got a shoulder injury, I don't see many. I'm not very good at it, but yeah. I know a physio who's very good. So if you came to me with that, I'd go and see, go and see X. Yeah. They know far more than I do. Yeah, yeah. So... Were you ever in awe of the people that you were with or do you think that you, that you weren't or how long did it take? I, I don't think it? I was ever in awe. What I was was I had massive respect for what they'd done and achieved yeah. because I think if I was in awe, it would have been difficult to sort of... Because in some respects, they were coming to ask my opinion. So in some respects, it was me, you know, rather than the tail wagging the dog, the dog had to wag the tail. Yeah. I remember one of our young gymnasts, a, four, a young girl of 14, tore a cruciate ligament, which is a massively traumatic injury, excuse me, for a 26-year-old professional footballer playing for his country. Uh, and again, it was lovely to be involved with her rehabilitation, which was emotionally difficult, but I was fortunate enough to work at the Olympic Games in Barcelona, and she attended it and competed. And to see that, you know, I, I've, I've had experiences like that that are are priceless you know I couldn't put a value of money and you could offer me 10 million pounds now or have that experience and I'm taking that experience yeah because money can't buy it yeah you know there's nothing can buy it and did you get the at Barcelona gig through Lolito? a bit of both what happened was at that time uh, the British Olympic Association looked to take people on to work at Olympic Games that were working at a reasonable level in sport of which I was again it wasn't paid I had to take my whole holiday to do it, right, okay. you know, so it, and so you had to make sacrifices, but there's no sacrifices no. there at all. And I take it that would be different now, it would be a paid position. I, I think it is now, I don't honestly know it's the truth, so it may be and may not be. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, again, it was, you know, it's very difficult to describe working in an Olympic village of 15,000 young people who are at the prime of their health trying to compete in what to them might be the greatest day of their life. Yeah. You know, so it, 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 it's phenomenal. And yet what we've got to remember is, though, when they come out of the other side of it, they're going to be on a big down curve. Yeah. Because for all that euphoria, the problem <coughs> of euphoria, if anyone's, if you've ever experienced euphoria, is the next day you feel like a bag of SHIT. Yeah. You know, because it, it takes it out of you. You know, and I think we are now becoming much more aware of what we call the duty of care. So the care after care. So rather than you've competed in Olympics, you're finished. Bye-bye. Mm -hmm. You know, working in the in sporting industry or competing is almost the fourth services you know you've got to be detrained yeah mm. yeah and um, so what was your highlight and low light of your time at early show uh many highs it was the olympics must have been one of the highs uh i didn't have many lows really uh i think you know there's there's always lows when you get certain players who you rehab and they go back and train and they break down and they have a recurring injury you know, because you a, feel as if, you know, could you have done better? And, you know, that's, no, again, what Lillishaw taught me was the ability to self-reflect is important. You know, have I managed every injury perfectly? No. Will I continue to manage every injury perfectly? No. But actually, if you reflect on it and you analyse what you could have done better first, mm -hmm. you tend to, well, you know, if you, I think it was, you know, Einstein had a favourite phrase in definition of insanity is if you do the same process and expect a different outcome. Yes. You know, so, and physios are no different to that. You know, we're, and people are not, you know, we, are, we, we sometimes think medicine is a precise science and it's not. You know, you can rehabilitate someone from a, a horrible hamstring injury in six weeks and someone might take six months. It doesn't make them a bad person. Yeah. So, 1994, mm -hmm. you made the move to Rangers. Uh -huh. Talk me through I, I was in a situation when I was at Lillishaw. The last probably three years, four years at 
Lillyshaw. A lot of players from Rangers came down to be rehabilitated at Lillyshaw. And I can remember probably, I think it was early 1994, uh, the Rangers physio at the time was an excellent physio. I think had decided he'd had enough of working in full-time football. Uh, and the doctor, a guy called Donald Cruikshank, a great man, had come down to, to Lillyshaw just to see how, and I think it was, I don't know who I was rehabilitating at the time. And it just made a sort of comment to me. The physio was leaving and, you know, and I just said, oh, well, you know, what's, what are you looking for? And I think he explained what he wanted. And he said, are you interested? And I went, oh, well, I don't know. And the answer was, I didn't, I mean, it was part of me was, because it was just a one-off conversation. Didn't know if I was or I wasn't. But uh, again, he contacted me a week later. And I think I came up and discussed a lot of things with him and Walter Smith about, you know, what would a football physio really look like? Did I want to come back up to, to Scotland? The answer would be yes in a, in a, very quickly. But it was also, I was a married man with a young family and realised the commitment of working in football would have been massive. So there was a lot more to consider than that. But cut a long story short, yes, I did come back. Uh, and myself, Walter and Donald agreed a way of trying to A, set up a department and B, you know, the strategic aim of the club and sounds a bit, naff to say it like that but it was quite simple was to try and match Celtic's fantastic achievement of nine championships in a row and could we match it and better it and yeah. you know little did I realise how difficult that was going to be but that was the aim and we all bought into it right. um, and did you have did you have an agent or did no, you just uh, no I didn't I mean I didn't A I didn't I've, I've, I've never really used agents I've used a lawyer before because I think lawyers are very appropriate uh, uh, Walter was again a man true to his word. He told me what the salary was, what he thought, how it could, who, how, what it would be, uh, and again, he was just everything he said materialised. There was, you know, him and David Murray. The whole club were at, in those days, and again, I can't compare it to now because I've got no record of what happens now. But yeah. we're, we're we're probably at the time for me the biggest club in Britain yeah. because more of the English clubs were still banned from European football. Rangers were attracting. Not just big crowds, top players from the Brian Loudrops to Paul Gascoigne's. They had massive ambition and they were a, but more importantly, they were a good group of people to work for. And I think that's important. It's not just about the badge, it's what represents it. Yeah. And when you got up to Ibrooks and you started working mm. with the players, you said that you'd worked with players before yeah. and you obviously have seen mm. the testimony with Derek McInnes. Mm. Do these guys have words with the players that maybe don't know you and say look this is Grant he's a good guy and I, I think yes and no I think that is the case but you've got to earn it yourself you know you, and, and reputation is only as good as what you've just done which means if I've rehabbed 10 cruciates very well before but the last one's failed you're probably not very good right you know so you've got to earn that and I think that's right and I think you know the one thing for certain you know sport is like the gladiatorial den and you're going to fight yeah and you've got you know and you were you were putting people out to public exposure so therefore again their health is important to them so you've got to take that seriously so I think you had to probably with what I'd done helped it means you were already halfway there but I think you had to go about it and you know earn it too yeah and they I listen to loads of podcasts with ex-players and all the rest of it and they say there's no time for settling in once you're no, at Ibrox no. that's it I take it's the same for the backroom staff you, you, you've got to you, you've got to hit the round, ground sprinting you, you, and, and that's exactly it now the good thing is you know I think the one thing that helps male, female whatever when you go into a new job the one thing that is settling is the job because the job the job was it different to Lillishaw yes it was but it was the principles were the same so what I mean by that was at Lillishaw we were rehabilitating players with long-term injuries there was no need to try and get someone fit for Saturday mm -hmm. so that bit was something I was less familiar with and that's pressure mm -hmm. uh, and it took me a while to get used to the the physical demands from that angle the psychological demands of the players uh, but again the good thing is there was you know one of the best physios I ever worked with was Walter Smith and what I mean by that was he wasn't a physio but he'd often tell me if a player was going to be fit or not and he was right because he knew them yeah. And actually what I learned from that was much of the ability to play. You know, players have to play with injuries. You know, you, you know, laterally at Manchester City, I used to regularly turn around to the young players and say, my job is to help you prepare to play 500 professional league games. And in that 450, you'll have pain in some part of your body. It's normal. And so it was very good to see, particularly in those days at Rangers, what players could play with what they shouldn't sometimes they shouldn't so I'm not saying they should always have done it 
but also could they perform? And so we, we now talk in the modern world of what we call return to train after injury, return to play and return to perform. They're three very different things. Right. And my sort of education in that started massively at Rangers. Um, and did you, you, earlier obviously you talked about getting chucked in the pool. Mm-hmm. Was it the same kind of thing? Ibrooks, you know, you're, you're treating the players, did you need to sort of fit in with them round the dressing room and round the you club? Do. Well, you do, because you've got to get to know them. And I think the one thing I think I'm quite good at doing is when I go into any new job, people often say, you know, what's your first meeting like with the players? Do you stand up and tell them what you're about? I've never done that anywhere. I've gone, I've never done that with a new manager. The first thing I do is listen to them, right. find what they used to, how do they like things being done? What do they see as the role of the physio? What time do they expect to come in? What are the consequences of that? So I'd like to think I'm a good active listener, which means I try and pick up the nuances. And, and, and again, it comes back to the fact that everyone's uniquely different. And for that reason, it's one of my favourite phrases, and I've used it with you before, I don't treat people like I like to be treated. I like, I like to treat people like they expect to be treated. But unless I listen to them, you know, a, a simple way of looking at it is we've got two ears for a reason and one mouth, which means listen twice as much as we talk. Yeah. You know, so therefore, if you listen to these people, you'll tend to find if, for example, Richard Goff or Brian Loudrup at the age of 29 has done something one way and they know it works for them, who's Grant down to say he's got a better way? Yeah. Be a bit naive if I think I did. Yeah. And going to a club like Rangers where you're expected to win every week, does mm. that pass on to the medical and the background stuff? Absolutely. Absolutely. I bet it's great. You know, if you don't... I, 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 um, as, as, as Sue, my partner, will tell you, Grant Downey's not a very good loser. He says he never loses. He wins or he learns. He never loses. He does lose. But no, but it's, it's important. It's very important because it because ultimately, what people forget about injury management, we are not trying to get people fit to play. We're trying to get people fit to play under pressure, and there's a difference. And so that pressure is massive, and you know where you are in the league. Walter Smith used to say to me, you know, Grant, treat the players no different if you win, lose or draw. And I, I never would, but the atmosphere is completely different when you win, lose or draw. Right. And thankfully not many losses in that. Well, we were fortunate at that time of Rangers. And again, you know, probably looking back, I didn't realise how fortunate we have. We had a fantastic manager <clears throat> in Walter. Uh, and, you know, he led a fantastic group of players and they were, they were leaders. And when they lost... Rarely did they look to blame things, you know, they looked at themselves first. Yeah. Again, that taught me the ability to, when an injury breaks down, don't blame the player, look at yourself first. Hey. And what was it like working with Walter? Walter, listen, Walter was a, a man who I hold in utmost esteem still to this day. You know, I spoke to him probably two or three months ago for quite a while about certain little things. And I still find it difficult to call him, I can't call him Walter to his face because he's, <laughs> he's just such a, a man to me, he's Mr Smith or his gaff or whatever, but he's such yeah. a... You know, he's such a astute way of dealing with people. And as I said to you, I am quite convinced if I was to take t- 10 people to make me better, he would be up there as w- the, one of the best in my, my my career. And I can't thank him enough for what he's done to me. Aye. And you hear people saying that he, he could go completely hairdryer. Did, would that be the same with you as a as the physio? Would you ever be on the end of a ball or rant? Or? I, I don't think Walt, Walter never needed to rant at me. I remember once when I did get something wrong, he actually just looked at me and walked away and that was worse. <laughs> I'd probably whole... rather he ran than me because I knew I'd let him down. Uh, the but, whole, I'm not angry, I'm just disappointed. Yeah, yeah, I'm just disappointed. And I think, again, that taught me the fact that, you know, can I be emotional? Yes, I can, but I don't like to be emotional in front of staff or players because I think it's not a weakness. It's almost, you know, if I'm emotional, am I really going to make the right decision? Yeah. You know, so I think, it, again, it taught me there's, there's times we all want to lose our rag, but what do we gain from it? Yeah. And usually we'll all often think afterwards, what did I do that for? Yeah. As I say, watching how Walter treated players, staff, how he also managed up, so how we dealt with the chairman in, in David Murray, who was a, a character of a man and, you know, was tremendous for Rangers at that time, you know, was, was, was fascinating. And I'm, as I said to you, I've always been a good listener which means I can sort of watch how people deal with things. And, you know, Walter was outstanding, yeah. putting it mildly. Did you have much interaction with David Murray? I did at times, and he was a real charismatic character. And I, again, I found him, he was very pleasant to me. He was very good to me from a from a contractual point of view. Uh, and again, you know, a man who's achieved what he's achieved in his life, you know, you know, you once got to admire. Yeah. 
Um, so eight in a row, mm-hmm. second season, mm-hmm. and Paul Gascoigne Rice, mm-hmm. biggest mm-hmm. name to come to mm-hmm. Glasgow in Absolutely. years and probably still to this day. Mm-hmm. Um, what was that like? You had you worked with him before? I I'd, I'd, I'd known of him before. No, I'd never worked with him. I was worried because at the time he wasn't. He hadn't fully recovered from a fractured tib and fib. And that was one of my first dealings with Mr Murray, the chairman, and he said it so well to me, because at the time we were paying a record transfer fee, and I was thinking, well, this guy's not even fit. Is this not a gamble? And he said, Grant, I'm not just signing him to play, I'm signing for commercial reasons. And I think we sold more shirts the next day that paid for his transfer outright. you know. And Paul was a character, and Paul's taught, taught me so much about dealing with what I call a maverick personality. And Paul was a was was a one off, a unique, outstanding footballer who had who had had who had some mental difficulties off the pitch because of a very troubled childhood. You know, the one place where he was totally free was on the football field. And when you watched him train and play, it, it was like poetry. It was like ballet. It was beautiful. He was an outstanding player. Troubled off it. Did he go out to do any harm to anyone? No. Probably the person he hurt most in his life was himself. And. You know, I, I am I am great. Paul taught me so much and, and taught me so much about management of injuries in different type of circumstances. He was a pleasure to be around, sometimes infuriating because he would do silly things, but not silly things, <laughs> but things that maybe wouldn't help his injury. So, for example, when he had a, a nasty ankle injury, he always used to like going fishing at night and I didn't want him to go fishing because it would sometimes make his ankle swell more. So in the end, I used to put his leg in plaster every day <laughs> so he couldn't go fishing. <laughs> <laughs> But that's the sort of thing he would do because he was just bored. Yeah. You know, but he wouldn't mean any harm by it. And as I said, you're very kind, you know, very generous person. He was very kind to me personally. You know, I spent many a time talking to him on his own just about, again, he had worries and anxieties and and things happened in his life which weren't pleasant, which I all think those things should remain private. And they would, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't tell anyone about some of the conversations I had with him because they were very meaningful and and, you know... I can also remember one thing, and I remember coming up to, I think it was coming up to a Christmas where Paul had been very kind to me. I'd been going through a difficult separation, and, and I think we were playing in a golf tournament. And let's put it this way, my previous golf clubs in the house suddenly were missing, which were wherever they went, who knows? So I decided I couldn't play, and he'd heard about this. And I just, I'd made some form of excuse that I couldn't really make the tournament. And I can also remember going into work the next day, just on the day of the tournament, and there was a golf bag in the treatment room full of golf clubs and golf shoes and a golf kit for me with a label from him, you are playing, you're one of us. <laughs> I still play with those golf clubs now. Do you? Yeah. And I take it that was a sort of camaraderie, camaraderie that went right the way through the squad? Uh, well, I think the squad, the staff were one. You know, we were we were... Sort of, we knew our objective. We knew it was going to be tough. There was times we all had to let off steam, because, you know, everyone said there was a massive drinking culture at Rangers. There wasn't. Players went out and drunk when they were told to, when they could. Mm-hmm. But most of the time, you know, nine times out of ten, they trained very hard. Yeah. Now, when they when when they went out, they parted. Yeah. Because actually, that was part of a release. You know, when you're under pressure, sometimes you've got to let the valve off yep. in any walk of life. You know, so they knew how to party. Don't get me wrong, uh, but they also knew how to train. And actually, they were, you know, they, they were together, and they were, you know, you know, we will have reunions now, and you know, you 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 look into the eyes of the players that you helped, and they help you, and you know, that bond will never leave any of us till the day we die. Aye, aye. Um, so, you, if I remember correctly, you did all. You were at all the home games. All the home games. I didn't travel to one of the things when I went was to to ranges at first is I felt my speciality was treating long-term injuries. So if I was travelling all the way to away games, you weren't getting that continuity of care. So I sort of sat down with Walter, and this system had never been tried anywhere else in Britain. We also didn't have a youth team physio, or no other club in Britain had a youth team physio. So I, and I, I, I sort of persuaded Walter after one year we should have that. So in some respects, it's quite funny, because when I look at the Premiership now in Manchester City, they have physios who don't travel, they're physios who only travel. They, you know, they also have dedicated academy physios. Now, we started the system, you know, quite a number of years ago at Rangers, and we were the first club in Britain to try it. And everyone on issue was saying, well, why is that physio not travelling? Now, this is the norm now. Yeah. But we did it in 1995. Yeah, and I take it that was because Rangers were such a, well, at the time, such a massive club that 
They were a big club and they realised that some of their long-term injuries weren't getting the care they needed. Right. And actually, if you think of the asset value, you know, footballers, as footballers, their asset value is people, they're priceless. Mm -hmm. But actually, if your asset value is being injured, it's not contributing. And, and you only win top games and top leagues if your assets are available. Yeah. You know, so getting them back on the field and staying on the field was my objective. Yeah. And... Um... Obviously, the pressure is massive to win the league. Yeah. You've already done seven, you're mm. going for eight. Mm. What's the difference between the league and the cup games? I think the cup games are a one-off. And, you know, you can lose a cup game and you're out of it. But if, uh, but in the league game, it's an accumulation. And if you think of when, when Rangers won eight championships in a row, Celtic lost one game that season. They drew, obviously, a few. Mm -hmm. But they only lost one game. So the pressure is massive. You know, there's very little room and you've got to... If you think of your own life, go through a ten a month calendar. Could you perform every Saturday? Do you feel like it? One of you got a snotty cold, and yeah. one day you've not slept very well. But you've got to, otherwise yeah. you're not going to win. So the pressures are massive, but they're meant to be. And I, you know, again, if you were Richard Goff, Ali McCoy, they loved that pressure. Some people it was too much for. Some players couldn't cope with that. Some staff couldn't. Did but, the, did those players? leave pretty quick or did they well Walter we did them out absolutely you know they come for a two years and they disappear yeah. uh, but, the, but but Walter realised he had to have a spine of a team that understood the mission and although they were getting older which meant they would be more injury prone they would tell the other players what it was all about yeah. as part of the squad Yeah. and did you prefer winning leagues or cups I think always the leagues because you know you, 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 you win a league over over 11 months, you know, mm. you win a cup over, what, six games? And they're nice, but they're, the leagues are what you remember by, without mm. a doubt. And I take it you don't get medals? No, we didn't get medals um, as staff, but you get... You, you know, it's funny, isn't it? Memorabilia is an interesting thing. I, I've always collected shirts from players that I've worked with, not with ones I've not worked with, and, and I've got quite a lot of memorabilia. I now have given quite a lot of it away. And it's not that I don't value it, but... No one can take away the fact you were there. A medal doesn't, you know, it's just a, it's a piece of metal. Yeah. But actually being there, you know, that, that stays with you. And inside you, that's the thing that glows like a warm, burning fire that, you know, lots of people might buy a medal from you, but they were never there. Um, so, one of my favourite other Rangers games, I still remember it to this day, jumping about my living room, my mum going absolutely mental because I was too excited, <laughs> but uh, eight in a row sealed at, Rain at Ibrooks, Rangers versus Aberdeen. Aberdeen. Yeah, great game, great. Paul Gascoigne Paul with Gas a hat-trick yeah. on it. Yeah, Paul Gascoigne got a hat-trick, and if I remember rightly, Aberdeen took the lead in that game, and then Paul Gascoigne scored within 90 seconds from a corner, yeah. and then I can also remember the following day I went onto the pitch because Paul Gascoigne and any... Any football fan, and, I'm, and I mean that, we're not talking here about Rangers being brilliant and Celtic not. We're talking about pure football. Go and watch his second goal because he started the move within his own half. And I remember going out onto the pitch the day afterwards and walking it through. But it's not just the goal. It's the context. It's the pressure. It's a situation that you know defied logic. And I think he was almost at the end of the hat-trick a little bit embarrassed because he's quite, he's quite shy is maybe not the right sort of word for Paul but in with him he's you know he likes to celebrate within his team yeah but he's not he is and he's a showman but not not just for the crowd but I mean that was a as you say a game that I think you know will live with me for for a very long time just yeah. because of how special it was I mean it's that second goal that we were jumping about oh. I mean it's tremendous he yeah, runs like near enough the full length well he runs I think probably between 65 and 70 metres and then holds two players off and finishes a goal with his weak foot. Yeah, and I remember like watching the game and they were all saying, oh, they should be taking Gaza off, he's looking tired and, and all the rest of it. And, and then the was. next thing... But, that, but that's what makes good managers, knowing what was going to win that game was a piece of magic yeah. and that was as magical as I've ever seen on a football field. And I take it that the parties after that were tremendous. I'd like to say I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> they were, they were, they were. Because and the nice thing was, we always celebrated at Ibrox with a, a sort of buffet supper. With, and the nicest thing was, and I always remember this, it was then a, like a, a disco. But every single person who contributed was there, from the laundry staff 
you know, to the, the, the catering staff of the time, of everyone who contributed. In those days, probably the backroom teams weren't as big, but everyone was there, and every, or everyone was invited if they wanted to go, and they were, they were good parties. Aye. And who was it, would it have been Walter, that sort of said, everyone, everyone's at this? Well, he would, he would insist, because he realised, as, 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 as most top managers realise, that, you know, I see that with Pep Guardiola now, and Pep Guardiola is no different to Walter Smith, that if he wins something, he ensures everyone who's been involved feels part of it. Yeah. And, and, and that's good, man, good not man management, good person management, because there are many rightful ladies play as much part in it as men. And so we should be, you know, the laundry staff to to whatever these people do, they're all part of it, irrespective of man, woman. So moving on to nine in a row, mm. and I take it we would agree that Gaza was eight in a row, if you were to sort of think yeah, about it. contributed. He, I, I think no one contributed more than the team for nine in a row. It'd be difficult to sort of single people out. You know, people like... It's easy to look at people like Brian Laudrup, who was an outstanding footballer. Yeah. But actually, you know, did we, we needed an Alex Cleland as much as that. We needed a... You know, we, we signed... And I'll never forget, you know, on, on, on the day we were going to play Celtic, which was coming towards the end of nine in a row when pressure was majorly on. Andy Gorham had injured his knee in Dundee United. I think we played either on the Tuesday or the Wednesday night. I can't quite remember. And we should have won. But we lost 2-0 and thought, oh my goodness. You know, that, that, and I think our gap was to Celtic was two points. Mm-hmm. And Andy Gorham had hurt his knee in that game. And I didn't think it was that bad. But then the next day it was swollen. So he's out the game and it, it was a problem. And it was a... So on the Saturday, we've still not even really signed a goalkeeper, but we've suddenly got Andy Dibble to come on loan to go to play against Celtic at Parkhead, you know, in what is the biggest game. You've also got Richard Goff playing, who's not really fit. Uh, and we've got a goalkeeper. I knew Andy because I'd treated him at Lillyshaw. And first of all, he turned up in a green suit. <laughs> so you can imagine <laughs> on the bus, everyone's... For that, but he didn't know. And actually, really, what's wrong with that? <laughs> Nothing. But we all know... Celtic Rangers, but and anyway, and Andy Gorham, to be fair, played and played well, and we won the game one 0 And I can remember, oh, and I sat next to Andy the bus on the way there and the way back because I knew him, and he always said to me afterwards, if I'd known the atmosphere like that, I never played in a game like it. But, but it was phenomenal. So why did we, you know, I would like to say every single player who contributed, and you know, one player I would like to single out because it's one that taught me so much, and for me it was very fitting. He captained Rangers when we won nine in a row, it was a guy called Alan McLaren. Right. And people will have forgotten that Alan McLaren had a very significant knee injury the season before. Yeah. And he played the whole of the season when he was in pain. His knee was swelling. We didn't really have an answer for it. Uh, and we, uh, we we went to lots of different places. And Alan had to retire. But he captained Rangers for nine in a row. And I think people, I'll never forget, he taught me so much. I can still, you know, it almost brings tears to my eyes thinking about the day the year after that, myself or Walter sat down and had to face reality with him, and you had to tell a twenty-five-year-old he's never going to play football again. Yeah. You know, and 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 it's you know, that's the other side of football that people don't always see. Uh, but he captained Rangers for nine in a row, and let's never forget that. And and do you think, like when you said though he played, was that his choice or was that a bit yeah, both? Bit of both. We you know we, we never you know we weren't in the time. I mean, I was very fortunate that myself and Donald, the doctor, we weren't into injecting players to play we didn't need to we weren't that type of people we wanted them to play he wanted to play we wanted him to play Walter did and you know would we have managed it differently now well we could have done but he wouldn't have played in nine in a row and he might probably wouldn't have played again anyway so in some respects we helped him be part of history yeah uh but you know but you know there are some sad stories in football and that's one of them but Alan was a a tremendous character a really I think an excellent an excellent person and you know great credit to him he managed right. and was the pressure there right from the start of the season like even in pre-season was there a, a feeling of like we need there's to an get expectation. this right? well there's an expectation and there was an expectation that that people knew they were on the verge of equaling Celtic's world record and it was a phenomenal record and so Celtic deserved great credit for it uh, and I think you know it would be difficult to say if you didn't win eight oh sorry if you'd only won eight you would have been failing because but it would have felt like a failing, and I think we all felt that. Yeah. And so the pressure was there, but, you know, the pressure doesn't... Well, it does crank up. I mean, it's every time you play a game, it cranks up. Every time you go and play a side. But, you know, there are certain key games that you remember turn things. And that Parkhead game was one of them for definite. And there was other games. I know we were... I think we were 
playing different teams at times you were losing but they ended up winning but you know you very rarely in life do you achieve anything worthwhile without blood sweat and tears yeah yeah. And did you feel that your relationship with Walter developed over the years, or was yeah. it? Uh, yeah, always develops. It develops in time with people, and 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 I I I felt as if the longer it went on, the more I could talk to him in 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 in, in a manner that you know we were. I really understood the way he thought, and it takes time. And I think I think people. You know, the modern world to get to know people, we either get to know them on social media, you know, or we get to know them by networking. You never get to know anyone by doing either. Yeah. You know, you've got to spend time in people's company and you've got to be away with them. You've got to understand them. And, and, and uh, as I said to you, I, I'm, I know from my uncle, I, I, I think, and I know I had a very good relationship with Walter and, and still do. We don't have to speak. I say I spoke to him relatively recently about something, nothing to do with, you know, Manchester City or Rangers time. It was just something we were catching up on and, we ended up speaking for 45 minutes, so that probably tells you something. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, so I'm going to put you on a spot a wee bit here. <laughs> when I was growing up, mm -hmm. Loudrop was undoubtedly my hero. Mm -hmm. But see, now looking back on it, I think Gaza was probably better. Mm. Do you think one's better than the other? Or? I think... Uh, listen, none of us are right or wrong. You have We have opinions. I, I thought Gascoigne in bigger games did more right uh so for me but 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 Loudrop was more consistently good right okay you know so you'd be wrong to really you know i i i just felt from a personal angle Gascoigne was the best player i'd ever worked with by quite a bit but if you were to look behind you you know Loudrop wouldn't be you know wouldn't even be a nose behind him they were close and right. and, and you know they were both outstanding but I if you're asking me I think Gascoigne was ever so slightly uh, a shoelace ahead of him <laughs> <laughs> and were they they both quite different personalities that Brian was a very family person relatively quiet a metronome would come in would train get changed go home see his family uh, and, and but he would still go out when the boys came out. He, mm -hmm. You know, he was a sociable guy, a very, but had his own way. Whereas Gascoigne, you know, was the the clown gesture at times in the dressing room and would be playing pranks on people, but n not malicious pranks. But and 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 you know, was 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 happy around the players. Where 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 Loudrop was, I wouldn't say a loner, but would quite happily spend time on his own. Yeah, yeah. both good people. And winning nine in a row, massive. Oh. Unbelievable. I mean, it stays with me as one of the highest sporting achievements in my career. Uh, and I think, I think, tremendous. I can remember the bus journey back from Dundee United. And it was a strange one because in those days there wasn't seven subs. So there were probably, I don't know, maybe 24 players on the bus, six or seven sports staff. Uh, and actually it was quite quiet at first <laughs> because I think everyone was relieved, tired anymore. And a lot of folk crying. Yeah. Because it was so emotional. Yeah. The party then began, but 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 at first it was reflective, and I think that wasn't a bad thing because I think again, and I can never forget sitting next to Walter for a few minutes and typical Walter, and it summed up to me what you call an obsessional winner is, and I'd like to think I I I was starting to be one and probably are one now. He was staring out the window and I remember saying to him, Gaffer, what 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 are you thinking about? And he went, How the, do I win ten? Because that's what top people do. You don't climb a mountain. You climb a mountain, you look to the next peak. Yeah. And it was a great lesson in me of, 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 of continually looking forward. But we'd enjoyed the moment too. And it was important to enjoy the moment because it was a, a very special moment of, of hard work. And, you know, you, you know, I think everyone, you know, we enjoyed the next two or three days. Let's put it that way. <laughs> and was there, did people that were there for the full nine differently to people that were there maybe from I think six so. or seven. I, th I think for people like Richard Goff who had been there for I think it was, it was three players who'd been there for it all that I can remember which were Richard Goff Ali McCoy and Ian Durant and then you've got people like John Brown and Andy Gordon probably there for seven and eight and John eight uh, it probably meant more to them partly because of the length of time and also they're Scottish so yeah. the history of it meaning something but I think it you know everyone else felt part of it and and I would almost say the achievement of nine in a row is often celebrated by those who are there on that moment but if you think about it some people you had to win one to win nine yeah of course you know so there was many people weren't there who were part of it yeah yeah um 
So, like you said, well, I was trying to get to 10. Mm-hmm. Never really happened. Well, it failed by two points, and it failed in the very last game of the season, you know, or the game before that, because I think, if I remember rightly, uh, who did we... We, I think, the day, the game before that, I think we lost at home to Kilmarnock 1-0. Uh, and we absolutely battered them and lost 1-0. Yeah. Uh, and if we'd won that game, we probably would have won it. But we didn't. And Celtic then had a chance, I think, away at Dunfermline on the Sunday, but they drew. Yeah. So we went to the last game of the season where we were at Tannadice again. Uh, and we, we won 2-1, I think. And I think Celtic were playing at home against St Johnson and they had to win and they did. And, you know, then, you know, it was, I can, again, I can remember feeling absolutely gutted. But you know, but you have to learn if you're prepared to win, you're going to lose at times. And, yeah. You know, you've got to try and you don't treat the two the same. And but you have to have the same respect publicly because Celtic had achieved it, so therefore they deserved it. We we can't complain. Yeah, it was the first season that you hadn't won anything. Yeah. You and know, we, we got to the Scottish Cup final that year, lost a yeah. Hearts two one at Parkhead too. Yeah. Uh, and it felt very. I can remember crying my heart out. I mean, I remember. I remember Walter. After we played Harps, we got back from Ibrox. I'm sorry, we back to Ibrox, having played at Parkhead because Hamden was being uh, renovated at the time. And I remember him giving a talk to all the players in the dressing room and and the staff. And I can guarantee you, there wasn't a dry house in the house, and everyone just sat there for about. And we were having a party upstairs, but no one could go to the party. We did eventually, yeah. but I think we just needed a an hour to ourselves, where every single man just bawled his eyes out. Do you think that um, well? Or- Announcing or whoever announcing the ball was leaving sort of halfway through the season, do you think that affected? Do you know I don't know. I, uh, some many people have asked me that question and I can't answer it because I don't honestly know. I think sometimes you could argue it could galvanise everyone to say let's do it in, for him, or you could say it goes the other way. At the end of the day, Celtic won by two points, so congratulations to them. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think we'll just kind of gloss over <laughs> the, yes, the rest of the move on. The rest of the table. <laughs>